HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, and welcome to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Today's show is brought to you by 360 Cookware. It's top-of-the-line stainless steel cookware that's made in America in the greenest cookware manufacturing facility in the country. It can be used to make all your favorite recipes, but it also gives the option to cook using vapor technology. You hear that? Vapor technology which creates a seal that surrounds food with intense heat, locking in vitamins, moisture, and flavor without added oil, fat, or excessive water. Visit 360cookware.com for more information. So, uh, Tuesday, 3 p.m., hanging at heritageradionetwork.com with my good friend, Ian Knauer. I don't even know where to start because uh, we met online. Not not match.com online, but... I don't remember that part. Yeah. (laughs) But we met uh, uh, somehow through some kind of social media, something, and that's what, we were all we were both on this. We were copied on the same sort of like foodie. Hey, what's happening at Christmas time? Yeah, situation. Yeah, very odd. And then uh, Ian at the time was working in the test kitchens of Gourmet, which you spent almost a, a decade in. Just about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he had invited me to come in and kind of photograph in my back of the house style and. Just hang out for the day and it became a reoccurring thing um no real end you know insight no real um outlet for it other than i was intrigued by gourmet the test kitchens ian himself and um it seemed to be a very interesting kind of copacetic uh relationship well you were you were good at it too because you stayed out of the way yeah and the problem with a lot of photographers is that they you know they want to get that shot and they need that angle and they're just under your feet. And in a setting like the like we had at Gourmet, everybody was constantly cooking and testing recipes. And, you know, I mean, you got to see it. There, yeah. there would be eight cooks cooking full speed ahead and somebody food styling in a photo shoot next door. Oh, yeah. Um, so you were really good at kind of, you know, staying 
away from underfoot. I swear, I'm going to put that in my business card. Yeah, you should. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stays out of the way. Well, I think get the, get the fuck out of the way. <laughs> yeah, we're allowed to curse. We're allowed to say that here, but it's the truth. Um, what was really interesting, too, about the gourmet test kitchens, in my head, it was, uh, you know, going to be stainless steel, Viking ranges, uh, you know, all the top-of-the-line equipment, but it was set up more like uh, a Midwestern, you know, average household uh, even the cabinet trees and even the size of the you know galley kitchen was limited it wasn't expensive and that was intentional uh, they they built it that way because the people who were cooking out of the magazine were cooking in a home kitchen and so it was really important to be able to simulate that and it, it makes a big difference if you're cooking on a huge wolf range with 30,000 you know BTUs blown blown under your walk um, <laughs> You're going to brown things a lot quicker. Yeah. Can you say that again? <laughs> 30,000 BTUs blown under your walk. Well, yeah. That's, that's a good thing that's, to put on your uh, business card as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, you know, we wanted to get the right timing and, and, and help people because there's nothing more frustrating than following a recipe and having it not work for your dinner party yeah. or, your, or, or, or your dinner. Yeah. You know? Speaking of dinner parties, uh, you weren't just... In the test kitchens, you have your own catering company. Sure, yeah, I cook all over town. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for hire. It's so slutty. <laughs> so it's called Kitchen Eats, right? Uh, is there a website? Is there? There is, yeah, kitcheneats.com. Make, mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you've catered for people from Ina Garden, the Barefoot Contessa. Sure. Oh, she's lovely. Yeah, she's really lovely. Uh, and her her food, she she will sit down with you if you're cooking for her and say, okay, this is what I want it to end up like. And, you know, if, if you don't see the right cherry tomatoes, then get the tomatoes that are going to taste good, you know? And yeah. she, she really kind of wants to hold your hand through the process because um, she knows it'll be a better result. Yeah. And, and what's so impressive about Ina is that she remembers your name years later. Yeah. And yeah, she, I can't even remember where I was. It was at some party or something. And she came up, to me and said, oh, Ian, oh, it's so nice to see you. I was like, how do you remember my name? Because it's a word jumble. I mean, <laughs> her name's Anna, your name's Ian. I don't think it's that far She's off. lovely. Yeah. She's a lovely person. And what kind of chicken did he cook for Jeffrey? Um, I can't remember. Yeah, because it that always seems like ago. on that show, it's always <laughs> right. chicken for Jeffrey. He's, he's a nice guy, too. Yeah. I didn't really deal with him much, but he's, he's very pleasant. But you also used to cater for um, one of your bosses. Sure, Ruth. Ruth Reichel. Yeah. yeah, that was a little nerve-wracking. <laughs> My my first year at Gourmet, we had a we had a Christmas party, and it was ha- at her apartment in Manhattan, and and you know I was I was a, to say I was a rookie is an understatement. Yeah. I was like a rookie's rookie. I was in my early twenties, and I had big balls apparently. So I just walk <laughs> up to Ruth, I stick my head in her office, and say, "Hey, you know, uh, you're not really paying me enough at the magazine because you know I'm underqualified." Yeah, <laughs> and. It, rightly so and how about you know how about i cater the christmas party next year and you know make a little extra cash and she like puts her pen down and looks at me and kind of cocks her head and says okay you have the job and then i was like oh shit <laughs> now what and it, it was a rough start but i did it for several years for six or seven years or something like that and finally i learned how to cook yeah which uh, lucky you know that's that's the other thing about the the experience that I had at Gourmet, they hired me because I didn't know how to cook. They wanted someone who tested the recipes um, from the eyes of the reader at home, who could sit there and cook the recipe as it was written and make sure that it worked. 
They didn't want someone who had a culinary degree. They didn't want someone who who worked in a restaurant. They wanted someone who's going to make the mistakes that that everyone makes at home. Well, I mean, you did eventually go to culinary schools, but eventually they sent me to them. Yeah, but, you know, the th- I mean, the thing is, the Cash Twenty Two is that if you are hired to cook five days a week for eight hours a day, you become a professional cook. And, yeah, you know, that's really where you learn is is actually not in culinary school. You learn the basics, of course, but you learn to cook by cooking, and anybody can become an excellent home cook just by cooking as much as possible. Yeah, because your your prior life, um, you were a stockbroker? I was, yes, I was a stockbroker. Yeah, how how did you fall into that, and how did you run away? Um, I fell into uh, the stock market because I thought, you know, I was young. I was right out of college. I thought that that's what people did. Yeah. You know, this is the dot-com era. Yeah. It, everybody made billions of dollars, and, and so... I got a business degree and I got a series seven and I, you know, I started working on wall street and, and actually in some less than reputable firms. And have you ever seen the movie, uh, uh, boiler room? Oh yeah. Because I've seen every Ben Affleck movie. <laughs> well, I saw the, <laughs> you got me there. Right. I saw the movie boiler room yeah. about two years into my market, um, life and realized that that was my life. And it was a terrible life. Yeah. You know, and I would call people up out of the blue and say, hey, send me your money. And I'd give them stocks to track and they would track them. They'd do well. And they'd say, all right, well, here's my 401k. And then, you know, uh, not intentionally, you know, I wouldn't intentionally lose the money, but it happened. Yeah. You know, and these are just normal people. And, and it, it weighed really heavily on my shoulders. So what I would do to um, get rid of my devils is go home and cook. And yeah. that, that was the thing, you know, and I think a lot of people can relate to that, you know. Cooking is such a relief. It's instant gratification. You see it unfolding in front of you. Um, and then you get to sit down and drink a glass of wine and eat something that you've made. And if it's not the best thing in the world, it doesn't matter. It's still gratifying. And so that was how I really got hooked into cooking. Um, and I just quit the market one day and was unemployed for six months. And and then I got really lucky. And yeah. you know, Ruth Reichel, who um, hired me, to be the dummy in the kitchen at Gourmet. Swooped in to save you. But yeah. during that six-month layoff, um, were you in the city? Did you travel? Did you... Well, take- both. Both. I was in the city um, because that's where the action is. And, you know, we all love New York. And at the same time, we all hate New York. And I'm very lucky. I'm, I mean, I'm blessed because my family has this farm in Pennsylvania. It's about an hour west of Philadelphia. So it's just into the rural part of Pennsylvania, just into the Alabama, yeah. the, the Pennsylvania part. Yeah. Um, and it's been in the family for generations. I mean, 1700s. What's, know? uh, what's your last name? Canower. And where is the farm located? Canower Town. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody believes me when I, yeah. when I tell them that, but I mean, you drive through this little windy, um, road and you look over to the church and in the grave, the graveyard, all the stones say Canower, you know? And oh, that's ominous. Yeah. Well, I guess so. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there, we have so much family history there, and it's still in the family. No one lives there anymore, so the entire family uses it as this place to go and, you know, get away from life. Um, and more and more over in my adult years, in the last decade and a half, um, I've been using it for that reason. It's, it's kind of created this um, really wonderful juxtaposition because you can't live in New York City. I mean, I live in Brooklyn. I spend all my time in Manhattan and in Brooklyn, and... Uh, you can't live here and maintain your sanity unless you can go somewhere else and get some fresh air. Yeah. And I'm lucky to be able to do that. Yeah. This uh, is an amazing lead into the project 
that you're doing now, this kind of split personality uh, idea. Uh, Ian's in the middle of writing a cookbook. Uh, So, well, first of all, congrats on that. Thank you. I can't believe somebody bought it. Yeah. That's exciting. Suckers. (laughs) Coming out uh, when? Spring 2012. Yeah. By Houghton Mifflin? Houghton Mifflin, yeah. Right. Fantastic. And what's the concept title of the book? The concept title is The Farm. uh, And then the subtitle is Stories and Recipes of an American Family. And the the overall theme is uh, based on my family and it's in its modern um, sense, you know, my generation, my, my cousins are having children, you know, um, that generation, my parents' generation, and touches also on this reverential fact that, that this place has been in the family for so long and, and we still use it and, and love each other and get along, you know. Um, not only that, but every time we meet there, Everything is based around food. Yeah. And because I was going back and forth from the country to the city uh, so frequently, I mean, I go out there whenever I can, usually every weekend, if not every other, um, I started to notice things. You know, here in New York a couple years ago, we started to see this, this wonderful trend in restaurants and in food where chefs, famous chefs, would take something that was an American concept and you know, make it either high-low or low-high. Yeah. And, you know, now you find sliders at the Stanton Social. And, um, the, I mean, the, the examples are endless. There's back 40. You yeah. know, there's the meatball shop. And, and it's this great American food. And we can eat it at 18,000 different restaurants here in the city. And then I would go to the country, and the places to eat are the Olive Garden or Sonic Burger. And the only place to shop was Walmart. Yeah. And that was it. And it was like, and Walmart is surrounded by uh, cornfields, but all that corn is used for ethanol and feed. Yeah. You know, so it's like you're in the the heart of farmland and there's no food to be found. Just subsidized. Right. So, so it gave me this idea a couple years ago. My sisters and I started growing a vegetable garden at the farm. The farm used to be a working farm, Um, but that's going back. two full generations now. You know, my grandfather used to grow vegetables there and my grandmother used to pick the wild dandelion in the in the yard and cook it for dinner and they used to have chickens and they used to have pigs and they always kept bees and that somehow got lost. That it, it's not just my family. You know, that got lost in America. Yeah. There was a whole generation and I love my parents to death, but it was their generation that um moved away from that. And so many things helped transpire to help that happen. Um, World War II and baby boom and corporate America and the list goes on and on. But but the point is that it happened. Anyway, um, I noticed that, that this was happening. I wanted to change it. I, I wanted to eat well when I went out there, not just have to shop at, at Walmart. Yeah. Um, so we started a vegetable garden. And it was... The thing about vegetables is that they want to grow. You know, you put them in the ground, you give them some water, you give them some sun, you try to keep the weeds away, and the next thing you know, you've got 6,000 tomatoes, and you don't know what to do with them. Yeah. Uh, and, and peppers, and zucchini, and corn, and it's just like, whatever you want, you plant it, you tend to it a little. And, and it's so easy. And it's so easy, and it tastes so good. Yeah. So, so the book is, is about kind of tying these two worlds together. Um, Focusing on classic American food, 
meatloaf, pot pie, and bringing them into this century, literally into this century, by making them modern and making them fun and making yeah. them the kind of things that you would want to cook for your guests in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, I love the... You had a blog for a while, a blog spot. Uh, that was called, what? It was a... Big, big City f- Country Boy. I think it defined <laughs> it, like, absolutely perfectly. Right. Yeah. And, and really, it focuses on that, because my, my family that lives in the country... Um, they're into food too. They really want to eat well and they don't have the resources to do that. They don't have, no one's, no one's holding their hand saying, okay, listen, you, you love meatloaf, but the only meatloaf recipe that you can find is this one from 1960 and it, it's dry and it's crappy. And that was the point when all hell started, you know, everything started to go to hell in American food. Yeah. And, and so, but here's how you make a really good one. And, you know, focusing on flavor and, and introducing these techniques that we've learned in the last 20 years um, from Europe and from Asia and incorporating them uh, into classic American food. Listen, well, we're going to take a quick break and uh, return to talk a little bit more about how Ian's modernizing American classics. Uh, we also have a friend who's going to verify some of the crazy stuff that happens out at the farm adventures to come yeah stay tuned <laughs> and you know uh, uh even diy dandelion wine a sure. wonderful piece that you wrote for gourmet all things awful <laughs> and uh so much more you've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network we'll be right back Listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Uh, today's guest, Ian Knauer. And we actually have a second guest call in, uh, Alan Seitzma, a good friend. And uh, Alan, you there? I am right here. How Excellent. are you? Very good. He couldn't escape uh, the office today. Alan actually works at Grub Street, which is New York Magazine's uh, food blog. What, what's your actual title 
for Grub Street. Uh, edit, editor of Grub Street. Editor? We thought it was like Grand Pooba or something like that. But. <laughs> Big cheese. Um, no, I think Eater called me some Overlord. I think Eater called me the Overlord. <laughs> oh, I, but, I dig uh, that. Dark Evil but Overlord. that's not an official. That's not what my business cards say, unfortunately. Put it on your business card. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> reprint. Yeah. So I'm not even going to uh, pass over the interesting tidbit that Ian just gave me. And he said, ask Alan about the acorns. Oh, the acorns. <laughs> We're still alive, so I guess that's good. Uh-huh. What, what, it, what happened? What's the story behind these acorns? Well, have we talked about Ian's farm? Do people listening know what, we the, mentioned, what this place is? We mentioned the farm. Um, we, let, me, let me just set the scene, and then I'll pass the torch over to you. How does that sound? Okay. <laughs> um, I'm down on the farm, always bringing friends from New York to the farm, and Alan is one of the friends that is there constantly. Um, and while we were there, we thought, well, wouldn't it be nice to have this, an actual local dinner? Um, so I shot a groundhog <laughs> that we braised in apple cider that we pressed from the apples that we picked from the trees. We picked wild arugula and uh, wild French sorrel to make a salad. And then I realized that there were a whole bunch of acorns down <laughs> from the tree in the front yard. It's a, like a white oak tree, a pin oak. So I, I cracked them open. I roasted them like you would roast chestnuts. And, and then we, we're standing in the kitchen, we're tasting them, and they're buttery. Um, but then they got really acrid and bitter at the end. So I, I was like, all right, what can I do? I'll candy the acorns. So I made candy acorns. The dinner was awesome. Yeah. It was good. But then we get back to New York, and Alan sends me a link uh, over email. All right, go ahead, Alan. Yeah, I guess it was maybe like four days after we got back or something, the New York Times ran a whole thing about how to make acorns not poisonous when you want to eat them. <laughs> and it involved all of these steps that we definitely did not take. Um, you in, had to in, rinse them in water in, for three months or something? Right. Yeah, the depoisoning of acorns was a step that we definitely did not do. Um, but we lived to tell the tale, so I wonder how much truth there is to the poisonous <laughs> acorn rumors. I got, I got the impression from the article that, that if you ate acorns without depoisoning them, you would die. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even feel ill after the meal, so I don't know what the situation would be. Um, you know, I always thought if something was going to get me at the farm, it was going to be a gun <laughs> or uh, a mushroom. Or a bonfire. Um, yeah, an acorn would be pretty bad, yeah. though, if that, was, uh, if that was the way. What about a red fox not leading into another story? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think we got that. Yeah. I don't think that there's any danger of the foxes getting us. <laughs> um, uh, yet another um, lovely piece of protein that you guys happened upon. Well, we didn't eat the fox. Uh, we didn't eat the fox. But we were driving um, to a local brewery called Sly Fox, actually, uh, to fill up some growlers. They make really good beer. And then driving back, there's a dead red fox in the road. And it wasn't there 10 minutes earlier when we passed the same spot. And um, I think Alan was driving, and I saw it out of the, out of the window. And I'm like, dude, stop the car. There's a fox in the road. And Alan's, what was your reaction? Um, I didn't stop initially. I did not <laughs> think you were that serious. Ian, Ian tends to be very cavalier with his country tendencies. Um, but I thought, that's too far even for Ian picking up roadkill. Um, turns out it's not. Yeah, no, I made him uh, stop, and I ran back, and I, like, nudged the fox's head with my foot to make sure it just wasn't stunned or something, and then I picked it up and threw it in the back of the car and brought it back to the farm, and we skinned it, and I wanted to practice tanning fur. is something that I don't have a lot of experience with, um, but I tanned the fur of the, of the fox. It's beautiful, 
Um, and I think that there's a there's a lesson here in terms of the meat too. You had mentioned the protein, and oh, uh, yeah. we didn't we didn't know if you could or couldn't eat fox, but that's how things at the farm tend to go. You don't really know if you can eat them until you eat them, <laughs> like yeah. acorns. Yeah, but um, I, I kind of want to preface that this isn't really about like machuism and you know killing animals and then doing what you do to them uh, because. Uh, shortly after I met, because Alan worked at Gourmet too, uh, shortly after I met Ian and Alan, I was invited to a goat taco party. That's uh, right. That was mm-hmm. fun. Yeah, but it was a, out of both intrigue and respect that you two organized this. The goat, absolutely. Uh, we wrote this, this story for Gourmet about a halal slaughterhouse in Queens. And you, you can go there and pick out your goat and they will kill it for you. And then they give you the whole thing. And it's such a moving experience because you can stand in the slaughter room and watch it happen. And the goat screams and you feel guilty um, that we didn't want to waste it. You know, we wanted to do a really good job cooking this goat. And I I think that transfers over. I know it transfers transfers over for me to everything I cook. Um, and, And you can make that same connection to the fox. You know, instead of letting this fox that was already dead rot in the road, why not? Why not do something useful with it? Yeah. And Alan, I mean, you've been to the farm and you've seen the sustainability of in cooking is it encompasses a lot. Yeah, and I think that there's something to kind of there's like a, I mean there's there's a truth to it almost um, th- that you don't get from you know processed foods and and Ian takes it I mean he takes it so far <laughs> the other direction, <laughs> um, but but there is something that that does. You know, you feel very connected to where you are and and what you're eating in a way that, I mean, you can't get even from like a farmer's market and even kind of, you know, looking at a restaurant menu and seeing these, you know, this ingredient pedigree. It's not the same as going out there, spending three hours in the woods looking for these mushrooms and getting, you know, maybe four of them and, and knowing that this mushroom crostini that you now are eating took an entire afternoon to kind of come together. Yeah, um, but- it's not all roadkill. It's not like no. squirrel or possum. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm so assuming it, it, maybe it's kind of the opposite of that. Actually, <laughs> yeah. it's very it, it. You know, it becomes very fancy all of a sudden. Yeah. Well, that's. I mean, and that's the thing. I think we're seeing that not just in my close circle of friends here in Brooklyn and at the farm, but I think we're seeing it on a national level. You know, and you can if you start with something that's special, you start with a, a special ingredient, even if you even if you know the person who sold it to you, you know, that makes it special and you treat it well, you don't have to be fancy about it. Just cook it with a little bit of love and it's going to taste better than anything you've eaten. Yeah. Um, I also want to kind of interject with, uh, Ian's adventurous nature. Uh, <laughs> his wife, Michelle is Brazilian. And I remember seeing him after a trip back, uh, with a distinct rash, right? Yeah, on my forearm. Yeah, I've yeah. gotten lots of rashes in Brazil, <laughs> but the one that you're referring to. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, well, we eat cashews here, the nut, you know, the cashew nut. But the cashew nut is attached to a fruit, and it's about the size of a small apple, uh, and it grows everywhere in Brazil. Uh, so we were eating some of this cashew fruit, and it had one of the nuts attached to it, and... Apparently, there's a roasting process that these nuts have to go through. Probably something similar to acorns. Yeah, and the right? New York Times wrote about it four days later. <laughs> right. <and you're> like, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm curious. I'm like cur- Curious George or, you know, a cat that only has one life left. And so I, I cut open the nut and I, I smell it. It smells very tannic. And I'm about to put it to my tongue. And my mother-in-law starts screaming at me in Portuguese, which I don't understand. And, you know, I, I pause and, and 
Michelle, my wife, says, no, don't eat that. It's poisonous. And I said, oh, wow, what, what kind of poison? You can eat these when we eat them in America? She's like, yeah, but you have to roast them twice, and there's this whole long thing. I said, wow, and it's dripping juice. And she's like, don't let the juice touch your skin. <laughs> I'm like, what? oh, you mean like this? And I rub it on my forearm, and nothing happens. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> so the next day, sure enough, um, like the wor- imagine the worst poison ivy you've ever had in a one square inch area on your on your forearm. That's what happens. It's like a little pus volcano that bubbles up and itches like hell. Yeah, but you can't scratch it because it it'll spread. Yeah, but Alan was Ian just amazing fodder for these kind of uh, you know stories while working with him and while I going mean, out to the farm. You know what's going to happen to him. <laughs> um, he's not the most careful person in the world, and uh, you know, I mean, the farm. No one comes back totally uninjured from the farm, and apparently that translates to Brazil also. <laughs> um, and it just kind of happens, but you know, you can't win them all sometimes. Yeah. I guess. But, but with this, his you know intrigue of new ingredients and you know not misunderstood, but not, not even understood ingredients. What what kind of things has he brought to you at the farm that you've seen for a first time or in a new light? I guess. I mean, I think groundhog is the big one. It's the one that it is a kind of a Knauer family staple um, that I don't think anyone else eats really outside of the farm. It's too bad, um, though. It is really, yeah. really good. What was the um, preparations you've had? I think that, the, I mean, the most popular one is the catch a Tory, right? Yes. The, hunters, um, the groundhog hunter's stew. <laughs> but you've also made terrines and um, and pâtés out of it, haven't you? Oh yeah, I mean you have to think of it like it's a, a member of the rabbit family, which it is. You know, it's a rodent, and rabbit takes really well to braise. It takes well to the grill, and it takes well to. I mean, the liver is delicious and silky. You know, and that's kind of a prize in a rabbit. Yeah. So translating that to a groundhog, it for me, it's a no brainer. And, and people are always timid to try it, and then they then they clear their plates. Yeah. It's delicious meat. I, it's going to be the next big meat in America. Ground, groundhog. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we been saying that about goat for three years now? That's true. The goat's catching on. It's getting there. I'm saying it right now. It's the next big meat. Excellent. And you're, you're live, too, so you can't redact that. <laughs> <laughs> but, We're going to write about it on Grub Street yeah. every day from now. <laughs> yeah, you seem to know someone that works there, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, um, Groundhog, I think, though, that, I think that what we're glossing over is that Ian is a really, really good cook. And, uh, and if he weren't able to kind of translate this stuff through technique, then it would be vile and horrible. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but it, you know, I think that he's sort of glossing over his skills. You can't just say, oh, yeah, just cooking it. It's going to be the most beautiful thing in the world. Yeah, here's the grass from my driveway and the groundhog. It's not necessarily <laughs> yeah. going to work. There, there's a basis. Right. You know, to his madness. But here's the good news. I mean, we mentioned the book that I'm writing. Um, there will be a groundhog recipe in the book. So if you happen to upon a groundhog, um, now you don't have to throw it out. Yeah. <laughs> you just have to wait till what, spring of 2012? Uh, spring of 2012. Yeah. yeah. So Stick it in your freezer. They freeze really well. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also want to touch uh, a little about Ophel um, because that seems like an extension of well, not that groundhog is a new meat, but um, uh, a lot <laughs> of awful, new meat. Yeah, <laughs> a, a lot of awful doesn't get used or eaten uh, um, in the U.S. Still, That's true. And uh, Ian did a great little piece for CNN's Etocracy Five by Five of 
different offal that he loves to cook with chicken hearts beef tongue monkfish liver turkey gizzards and testicles which i must uh repeat the quote uh he said that i'm not even joking balls are creamy and delicious (laughs) (laughs) actually they're actually naturally salty too which i guess shouldn't be a surprise but like not to make fun of ian at all but it's to make light of the fact that He's having fun with this. He he's have he, he has a you know jovial spirit. It's not just all technique. Oh yeah, well come on. I mean, uh, uh, so many people, especially with the internet. Sorry, Alan. Um, <laughs> so many people take food way too seriously, and and by extension of that, they take themselves too seriously. You know, you're eating, think, you're drinking, have fun with it. I think that what it all gets down to is there's a joy of discovery, um, especially when it comes to Ian. That's sort of similar to you know the appeal of jackass. <laughs> yeah. um, where you just you like to just watch it happen, um, but you know nine times out of ten it's really good. Yeah. Uh, I think the other thing though is that Ophel especially has gotten kind of weirdly um, transformed into this thing that a lot of guys eat as like a sign of their masculinity and to kind of show off, and that's you know not necessarily what's happening um, with Ian all the time. Yeah, sometimes I, I think yeah sometimes sure, um, but I think. With me, it really is an extension of that that idea where you you just want to use everything, and it's wrong to let something go to waste, um, especially if you're responsible for killing an animal. Yeah, uh, I really, right. really believe that. You know, and and I might sound a little cavalier, like oh, I shot a deer, or oh, I shot a groundhog, or whatever, like you know. But when you do that, when you live that way, when you eat that way, you start to see that you, uh, you don't want to waste anything, anything. Yeah. And so if it if it means cooking up the deer testicles, then you learn how to do it. Yeah. And you learn how to make it taste well, delicious. Well, I, I also want to illustrate that, you know, Ian has a heart. And I'm not talking about Ophel. Um, <laughs> I'm talking about a very moving story that he wrote for The Atlantic uh, about oh, not wasting uh, even a sandwich. Right. Uh, can you but, tell us a little about that? Sure. Um, when, well, when I was growing up, uh, I was the oldest of 24 grandchildren, so... Uh, a lot of the farm chores fell on me, you know, uh, tending to the beehives and mowing the lawn and all the stuff that the adults didn't want to do. Um, and my grandfather really kind of took charge of me it, during the summers when I wasn't in school and gave me all this work to do. And, uh, you know, I hated it. But as the summers wore on, we grew really close together. And I, he was a great mentor and I learned so much from him. Um, and then I, I started growing up a little and I traveled and uh, this one summer I went to Germany for a month and on the way back you know I, I realized that he was the person I missed and what I missed was was spending time working with him and learning from him um, and I went over to his house and was mowing his lawn and he made me a sandwich a, a Lebanon bologna sandwich with butter and iceberg lettuce on white bread which doesn't sound fancy it's not um, but this is a man of, of a generation of men who never cooked, never set foot inside the kitchen. That's just not what men did then. So it was such a moving, touching sentiment um, to have him make me lunch, make me a sandwich, you know? And it's something that I always remember. It's something that, it's a sandwich that I will make for my children when I have children because it means so much. Yeah. Uh, not to ruin the sentiment by all the construction going on at the right. studio. Yes, there are men working around us here. Yes. <laughs> Back to the uh, cavalier <laughs> ways. We are building something. We are destroying something. Um, Alan, any any 
last words about Ian. Not 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 we're reading him his rights or anything, but <laughs> <laughs> any last words about Ian? I think that um, I think it's interesting. I think that you know the things that he does and the things that he's into are very trendy right now and very kind of popular. But you know, you meet him and you talk to him and you see that. This is not anything that's trend-based for Ian. Uh, he's definitely been doing this his whole life. And when you grow up eating groundhog, there's, you know, there's a little bit more to it than just uh, kind of the, the coolest purslane that you can find. <laughs> I said, well, Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, Next time you're you going to have to uh, you know, hang out in the studio. In the, <laughs> Next time. Next yeah, time, definitely. Uh, once you, uh, like Tron, get out of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm trapped in yeah. here. I don't know that there is a way out. Uh, Ian, thank you so much. Really, My pleasure. Really looking forward to uh, the cookbook coming out. T- uh, tentative title is... The Farm. The Farm. Hoden yeah. Mifflin. Uh, That's sp- not the best title possible. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah. The, the, the title that, that I would really want and the title that Alan suggested was American Seed. Take that... Anyway, you want. Yeah. <laughs> I was speechless. Absolutely <laughs> speechless. Um, That's just what you want at a Barnes & Noble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, don't wait. Go get a groundhog. Um, figure out a cacciatore. Or just wait until... 2012 and Ian will tell if enough you enough people write in we'll, uh, we'll post a recipe on the website <laughs> sounds good everybody write in to Alan Grub Street New York Magazine we want to see Groundhog that's right coming up <laughs> yeah excellent you've been listening to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network I'm your host Michael Harlan Turkel just want to thank our sponsor again 360 Cookware uh, our producer Jack Inslee our engineer Nat Wiener and again our lauded guest Ian Knauer fun to be here <laughs> Excellent. Well, catch us every Tuesday, 3 p.m., HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Later. Thanks for listening to The Food Scene on the Heritage Radio Network. This is Jack just letting you guys know that at the root of it is our next show live at 4 p.m. Aaron's going to have Charlie, who just produced a film called The Ways of Wine. And uh, as always, you can call into the shows at 718-497-2128. And remember to follow us on Twitter at HRN Updates.